Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. How is everyone doing today? Here on SU's campus, fall is really definitely here. And we are just off of our fall break, and we had an awesome event today. And we are talking about all things sports, sports culture, gender, race, economics, all things you can think of. I've got two awesome guests in the studio with me today, and I'd love to just get started and get them introduced. First, we have one of our own faculty members members, Dave Berry. Dave, welcome to the studio. Hey. <laughs> Dave, tell us a little bit about what you do and also what you do at SCU, because I think both populations don't know what the other part of your life is like. So at SCU, I am a uh, professor of economics, uh, technically. I teach uh, sports economics, gender economics. I teach history. I spend a lot of time not saying economics. So I do a lot of <laughs> stuff that's not economics. Uh, and then I do a lot of writing. So I've written for Forbes and the New York Times, and I've written books, uh, all on the topic of sports and economics. So I do an awful lot of stuff in that area. And I get interviewed a lot by the national media. And this is so and that brings us to our guest here. Yeah, you've been telling us some great stories about doing interviews like during class so that the students can really see what that's like. And I yes. think that's amazing. Yes, interviews are a little different. Uh, than what students typically do. So students take tests. You get a study for the test. Uh, if you do well on the test or badly on the test, just the professor sees it. Uh, interviews like this one right now is you do not know the question before it comes. And the minute the question's asked, you must start answering now. And then the audience is, of course, judging your answer right now. No judgment here. Yes. Well, there's always judgment. So, so, and that's that's a very different. And I've done interviews in the middle of class where... You know, someone needs to talk to me right now, and so students get to see me doing that. Yeah, I think that's a great experience for our students. But we do have another person in the studio, and she has been our guest on campus. She's kind of in residence with us this week, and um, I've just been so impressed with her, and we've just been really enjoying getting to know you. So welcome into the studio, Kavitha Davidson. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And we'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about all the different places that I mean, you've been featured, of course, we know with Bloomingbird, with um, uh, ESPN, ESPNW, but tell us a little bit, do your, do some name dropping of places where you've been featured. Uh, sure. Okay. Um, well, I'm a sports writer at The Athletic, uh, and I host our daily podcast with Wondery uh, called The Lead, and we just launched this past September, so we are fairly new. Um, but basically, my background is in sports business reporting, which is how I met Dave over here. Um, and yeah, I started my sports writing career at Bloomberg. I was a, a columnist and a daily columnist at Bloomberg View, now called Bloomberg Opinion. Um, and then I moved to ESPN. I wrote for ESPNW and ESPN the magazine. Um, and now I'm at The Athletic uh, and and doing this podcast thing, which is 
Which is very cool. And I, I have some TV and radio experience, uh, but the podcast space I'm very new to. Well, I've been loving the podcast. Again, that's called The Lead. And I'm going to, I've got more questions to ask you. We've been talking about it a lot today, and I've just been digesting it wholeheartedly for the last few weeks. And I'm really excited to talk about it more. So welcome in. Welcome to SCU. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. My first time in Utah also. It's been so beautiful. And I think Dave's going to take me on a hike tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah, yes, get those exactly boots. what we're going to do. Very long hike. So. <laughs> not that long. No, not that long. <laughs> you know, Give her a break. Give her a break. <laughs> well, uh, we have been talking a little bit about your background and kind of how you got from there to here. Um, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you kind of got mm, maybe your first break story. I mean, I know that you started out doing, you were telling some of our students, some maybe not so glamorous, but you know, jobs and then building into how you kind of made your break into sports writing. So I'd love for you to share that. Yeah, I mean, when I applied for colleges, I kind of knew that I wanted to be a sports writer. And, and you know, that's not to scare your students who don't might not know what they want to do, because most people in college don't know what I want to do. I'm, I'm that weirdo uh, who <laughs> knew and actually kind of managed to make it happen. Um, but yeah, throughout college, I mean, I was the sports editor of my college. I went to Columbia. I was the sports editor of the Columbia Spectator. Um, and I just kept doing internships, paid and unpaid, but honestly, they needed to be paid because my family didn't have a lot of money. Um, that kept my foot in the door, whether it was sports related or media related or journalism related or some combination of the above. So uh, one of my first jobs in sports was very unglamorous. Um, and it was basically watching games that had already aired, noting the timestamps of when advertisements or signage would appear in that game, and then writing survey questions to like kind of measure brand recognition. And I did wow. that for Nielsen. Yeah. And eventually, um, I had a real job at Nielsen where <laughs> I, I, I worked for the sports marketing and analytics department. But, um, you know, that was kind of my stepping stone. And then, you know, I did a media relations internship with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I interned with the Staten Island Yankees. And, you know, as a native New Yorker and a huge Yankees fan, that was kind of the first time I had worked for a front office and kind of realized I didn't want to work for front offices anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, when you see how the sausage is made and all of that. Yeah. Um, interned at Time Magazine for kids, um, wow. Sports Illustrated for kids, and just going down the line, just again, just trying to keep keep the writing muscles going and 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 keep yourself relevant. Um, eventually I ended up as a research intern at the Huffington Post. Mm. Um which basically means I was doing research for articles that our CEO and editor-in-chief was writing for speeches that she was giving, um, things like that, and eventually moved into the newsroom. But in the course of, of being that intern there, you know, I kind of, I went to the Huffington Post and I knew that I wanted to be a sports writer. So the first day that I was there, you know, very wide-eyed and naive and, and very gung-ho, some might say pushy, um, <laughs> I made a meeting with our then executive editor and sports editor where I was just like, we should be writing all of these sports stories. And they were thoughtful, um, you know, progressive-minded uh, sports stories that I thought I wasn't seeing anywhere. And I literally came prepared with a two page list of these stories. Um, you know, my executive editor there at the time kind of just looked at me and said, you know, we don't really put these resources into our sports reporting, but these are great ideas, you know, keep at it, that kind of thing. And then 
the London 2012 Olympic Games came around and this same editor reached out to me because they wanted to do an Olympics themed issue for the magazine and asked me to pitch a couple of stories. And I ended up writing uh, a few of those pitches and one of them ended up being the cover story of the magazine. And it was this sprawling several thousand word feature on the history of women in the Olympics because it was the first year that women's boxing was an event. So it was the first year that every sport had both male and female participation. But it was also the first year that Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Brunei sent a woman. So it was the first year that we had a female athlete from every participating nation. So I kind of took this broader historical sense, this broader historical lens um, to study that. And then I went back and did U.S. history with that and Title IX history and the first women's basketball team, all that anyway. Um, So fast forward to my editor on this piece ends up going to Bloomberg View, again, now called Bloomberg Opinion, um, and they wanted to expand their sports coverage. So uh, he ended up reaching out to me. And at this point, I was a world news editor. And in addition to running the world news page for a full week, I somehow cranked out five tryout sports columns a day. (laughs) That's amazing. I don't know how you did that. I probably slept for two hours a day for that week. But, you know, I I was hungry for it and I wanted to do it. And I, I... don't think I could do that today at the ripe old age of 30. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're pretty energetic. Well, I bet you could. Thank you. I have four cups of coffee in me right now. <laughs> well, you know, I read when I was looking up articles and wanting to read as much as possible that it was, I mean, you have hundreds and hundreds of articles. So that's why I was thinking like, wow, you've been churning out so much for so long. Yeah. And it's funny because I've, I've done it for outlets that have never prioritized quickness over quality. So Mm. Bloomberg, Bloomberg's whole thing was, you know, obviously be timely, but this has to be good, right? It wasn't, there was no mandate, there was no quota. And and I think a lot of, especially newer media companies, you know, there really is like a 10 article a day kind of thing. And uh, that wasn't the case. And then at, at ESPN, it was even more of a step back. I wasn't necessarily writing daily, I was writing about twice a week. And now at The Athletic, I mean, the whole thing at The Athletic is that the reporting is so important. And because we're a subscription based model, you know, we have to give our readers something more than just an aggregation or a recap of the news. Like they right. expect, you know, our reporters who have incredible sources and have been covering these teams on the ground for years, in some cases, decades, to give them something more than just, you know, a straight reporting. They have to, you know, they have to really have a reason to pay for our writing. So uh, in that in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that it's been slightly slower paced, but, uh, you know, still kind of a grind. Well, I know the podcast is, I mean, I really want to get into that. But before we do that, I want to uh, sort of highlight one of the the through lines between the two of you is uh, dealing with issues of gender in sports. And I'd love for you both to just um, maybe comment about um, what what it what is important about that to each of you individually? I mean, I know there are some obvious answers to that, but just um, since we have you both here, and you're coming at it from two very different perspectives and backgrounds. What is it about gender in sports, in particular, that is um, so important and so um, passion driven for for both of you? Dave, how about you? All right, let me uh, let me take a, a really broad picture of this. Uh, if you think about Think about economic growth like a sporting contest of some sort. So you you want your economy to grow. You want to do better. If you were a sports team, you'd want to make sure that everybody on your team was participating. Right. Uh, 
The way we have it set up now is we don't have full gender equality. So basically we have half our population is not doing, is not allowed to do as much as they could do. It's really hard outside of sports to highlight this as clearly as you'd like to. Inside of sports, we have data. We can see it. It's visual. If you can highlight for people inequity in sports and and highlight women doing things that they were not expected to do, it makes it easier to take that argument outside of sports and say, we're all going to be a lot better off if everybody's participating, if everybody is allowed to do us what they are capable of doing. So for me, the issue is it's a broader economic sociological issue. Mm. It's not just sports. It's this is good for society to think about this. And the people who oppose these ideas, who oppose feminism and oppose gender equality, they're typically the people who benefit from the current setup. And it's the case, if everyone gets to participate, if everybody gets to run the race, the outcome will be different. If you restrict who gets to run the race, as we do, or you make the race harder for them, uh, there are people who are winning the race in society who get positions of leadership who end up coming out on top, who in a, in a more equitable society are not going to have that outcome. And they probably know that. And mm-hmm. so they don't like feminism and they don't like gender equality. And they don't like racial equality. They don't like those things because it makes them losers. Mm-hmm. And that's the, really the big issue for them. And so I think that's really what I think gender equity is all about. And I think sports is a great way of highlighting this. Oh, great. Thank you for that. Kavitha, how about you? I know that this has been, I mean, you're a professional woman in sports journalism. Tell me some of your current, you know, opinions on this topic. I mean, yeah, I think that I, I maybe grew up relatively naive, maybe, or at least sheltered from how difficult the world can be for women. You know, I was a sports fan. My mom's a scientist. Um, I was kind of never told that I couldn't do something just because I was a woman. Um, And just by virtue of being a sports fan, I think was kind of the first time that I I ran up against that, that it was just weird for me to be in this space. And, and, you know, Dave and I talked about this earlier, you know, when you mentioned to somebody that you're a sports fan and you're a woman, you immediately get tested. You immediately get the question, well, uh, you know, who, what, who won the batting title in 1985 and, and that kind of thing. And, and so like for me to have personally run up against this, obviously, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to work toward changing that, that part of our culture and that part of the status quo. At the same time, I, you know, I have a financial journalism background. Um, I'm a very pragmatic person. Um, so I think I've tried to to make the case that, you know, gender equality, while obviously, you know, we we should and we can make the moral argument for it, but it's, you know, women, we're not a charity case. And, you know, if you can make the pragmatic financial argument that by ignoring equality just to maintain the status quo, you are leaving money on the table, which is the reality of it, then you can reach so many more people. Um I do kind of wish that we lived in a world where we could just be like, hey, 50% of our population is women. So uh, we should treat 50% of them as we treat the other half. But yeah, we don't. Yeah. Well, thank you both for those. It's just great to kind of hear what your current perspectives are. So that brings us to our first musical break. Um, I always pick, you know, some fun things and I have some fun surprises. I have a fun surprise for Kavitha coming up. But um, the first song I'm going to play, I, I was looking for like girl power kind of songs. And I looked for, um, you know, like the top 10 songs that um, women athletes like to listen to when they're working 
working out um, and when they're practicing. And and I came up with a few that I I, I, I like too. So um, the first is Unstoppable by Sia. So have a listen. Um, and just a reminder, you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. takes to fool this down I'll do it till the sun goes down and all through the night time oh yeah oh yeah I'll tell you what you wanna hear keep my sunglasses on while I shed a tear it's never the right time yeah Feeling sure is the only way to make friendships grow, but I'm too afraid. 
Okay, everyone, you are listening to the Apex Hour. Welcome back in the studio. That was Unstoppable by Sia with our Girl Power playlist. I am in the studio with Dave Barry and Kavitha Davidson. Welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back. <laughs> well, we've been talking about your writing, but you have a new project uh, that has just launched. A, it's about been a month or two, right? A month, yeah. A month, and that is the awesome podcast called The Lead, which you can find on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, it is, first of all, it's just great. So, but can you tell us a little bit about what what The Lead is all about? What What's its platform? All these kinds of things. Thanks, yeah. Um, so we launched at the beginning of September, um, and the idea is, you know, there's so much shouting in sports talk, radio or podcast. And there's, you know, everything's about having a hot take and, and having, in some cases, an uninformed opinion about everything. But what we wanted to do was put together a show that dives a little bit deeper and also takes advantage of just this incredible network of reporters that we have at The Athletic. Um, so we've partnered with Wondery for this, for this podcast for, uh, which is called The Lead. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's daily and every day we do a deep dive into one issue, one event that's happening in, in sports or, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, some fun bits of sports history. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Our, our launch episode, um, came the day after the Saints and the Rams opened the NFL season. Um, we'll open that, that Sunday, um, against each other. Uh, and, uh, we went back and we looked at, you know, defensive at, um, the pass interference challenge that went back to the NFC championship game from last year. Um, and kind of used that as a jumping off point to talk about the New Orleans Saints fan base and the feeling of being an underdog in an underdog city and what survival means and, and all of those things. Um, on top of the fact that, you know, Saints fans launched this incredibly, uh, detailed campaign where they had billboards and boy, they boycotted the Super Bowl and, you know, they brought some, they brought some stuff to the Senate floor even and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so that, that's an example of, of, of one kind of episode that we did. And then another kind of episode is, does anybody remember Big League Chew? Totally. Right. I yeah. mean, they're still around, first of all. Um, but we did a history of how Big League Chew came about. And I won't I won't give it away here because you should go and listen to it. But it's a really fascinating history. It's kind of a heartwarming story. Um, so that's just kind of the range of of topics that we can that we've been hitting on. And then, you know, we we fast forward to current events and events of today specifically. Yeah. So, you know, depending on when people are listening to it, we're we're here in, in late October 2019. And I'd, I'd love for you guys to tell us a little bit about this, what the episode that dropped today. And then we had news within the last hour. It's something that's happening right now. Yeah. So, I mean, earlier this week, there was a report from Sports Illustrated about an Astros executive taunting a group of female reporters in the clubhouse this uh, this past weekend. And uh, it was about a player who had been acquired after, uh, in the middle of serving a domestic violence suspension. Without going through the whole story, um, that's a pretty Serious. revolting thing yeah. to do. And then the Astros' immediate response to this report was not just to deny the behavior, but to basically say that this female journalist uh, lied. They said that she fabricated the story. Now, to a reporter, that is one of the most serious charges that you can make. The other, but, you know, beyond that, the mistake that they made, obviously, other than owning up to what this executive did, was they tried to deny that something happened 
in the in a room full of reporters. So immediately know, people came that's... out and denied it. Anyway, there's been this whole backlash about it and what this means um, for when you know a team and an institution rushes to the defense of somebody who does something uh, that really amounts to workplace intimidation. And so we did a, a deep dive uh, episode about that this morning. And just breaking in the last hour, the Astros have fired uh, this executive after facing, you know, several days now of backlash. So, you know, sometimes it takes them, it takes teams and it takes leagues a long time to get to the right decision. But I guess we should be grateful that finally they arrived there. Although yeah. We should be pointing out that it did take them a long time to get there. And along the way, they said a lot of things that weren't true, including the general manager saying, I believe it was yesterday, right? Saying, I'm not sure about the intent of this executive when they were doing this. And apparently today he discovered what the intent was, which we all knew what the intent was when it happened. So. Well, and I, I can't speak uh, I can't speak on this with direct knowledge, but we do know that MLB said that they were investigating this. Um, so, you know, perhaps some pressure came from the league or maybe the Astros just saw that this PR fallout wasn't going to get any better. Mm. Um, and that also it just was kind of an unfair position to place this woman reporter and other woman reporters and just other reporters in general in the position where they would have to contend with a high-ranking executive who basically accused them of, of fake news. Yeah. And do you feel like the journalistic community really rallied in this case and helped? Absolutely. I think that that's, you know, it's we're we're living in a time right now where journalism is under attack and we all have a responsibility to do better at our jobs, to own up when we need to correct something, to make sure that we double, triple, quadruple fact check things. Um, but at the same time, you know, the erosion of the fourth estate of journalism can only lead to worse things for the country. So when we accept at face value, when people in our highest institutions call into question very reputable and credible and, you know, uh, corroborated reports and and you know that that really puts the entire institution of journalism under fire so i think that we all recognize that and obviously you know we're competitive with each other we don't always agree with each other but we recognize when a fellow reporter is is being gaslighted yeah one of the other uh episodes that that i thought was really fun and interesting and current and all of these things was uh, the episode about the juiced baseballs mm -hmm. and i was wondering if you could comment on on that and tell our audience a bit about that and where things stand with the with where the ball is right now. Yeah, so Major League Baseball saw an unprecedented home run rate this year. Um and we're not talking standard deviation or standard variance. We're talking like really wild numbers of of record breaking home runs and uh, you know we can see that from a league perspective if you take the totals we can see that from the team perspective the Minnesota Twins set the record the New York Yankees were very close behind uh in second place both of them having record setting years but then we can also see that from an individual from an individual uh, perspective, and I, I bring this up as an example as a Yankees fan, you know, you have hitters like Brett Gardner who are not home run hitters hitting 28 home runs on the season. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. So there started to be the sense 
in the middle of the season that there was something about these baseballs. And it wasn't just about the numbers. It was also about how these baseballs were flying through the air. And there have been some studies done. And we had an astrophysicist who has been studying this actually on the show to talk about the composition of the baseball, the changes in the manufacturing techniques, and the the, the things that kind of lead to these baseballs being being hit farther than they ever have before. Now, we're very careful to note that we don't necessarily think this was some nefarious scheme that, you know, Major League Baseball got together in a boardroom, some in a dimly lit boardroom somewhere with like candles and wax dripping and, you know, decided to like change the composition of the baseballs. But this is something that happened. Now, in the postseason, it seems, and Major League Baseball denies this, but it seems that the baseballs have gone back to what they were in years past because the home run rate has really dipped and the way that they have just been flying off the ball um, has dipped. So we had an astrophysicist on to talk about that, to explain the science to us, uh, you know, us, us noobs who aren't, who aren't physicists. Yeah. And then we had Jason Stark on, uh, the fabulous Jason Stark, to talk about what a higher or lower incidence of home run would mean in the World Series. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And and again, not to give too much away, but knitting and crocheting comes up in that episode, uh, which is fascinating. And then the fact that, that there is this change kind of between the regular season and the postseason is just fascinating. So um, that was a really interesting episode. The episodes are not too, too long, which I think is also something th- that was probably a conscious decision. Yeah, we try to keep to the 15 to 20 minute range. Um, if something deserves more time or there's just so much material there, we obviously will deviate from that. But, you know, our thought is it shouldn't take more. It shouldn't take longer than that to tell a story if you can tell it well. Um, and, and, and that's the idea. Uh, so we hope that they're digestible and we try to go we try to go fairly deep uh, into these into these issues. And we also don't assume, you know, we're, we're obviously there for a hardcore sports fan. I'm a rabid, crazy person when it comes to sports. Um, but we also try and make it accessible. If you don't know a ton, uh, you know, I think like we talked about at the at the top of this conversation, so much of my career has been based on using sports as a lens to explore broader issues in society or um, you know, uh, intricate, intricate details and intricate issues in ways that are accessible because sports is so universal. Um, but at the same time, if you're not a sports fan, some of these stories are just compelling. These are interesting people. And, and we, we'd like to think that you care about them, whether you're not, you care about these games. Yeah, I totally agree. Are there any future episodes that you like to sort of drop hints about? I will drop a hint um, that we have been very lucky to have some major political players on. We had Governor Gavin Newsom on a couple of, of weeks ago to talk about the bill that he signed in California granting college athletes the rights to profit off of their names, images, and likenesses. And next week, I won't, I can't really tell you when exactly, but next week we will be running an episode with Senator and presidential candidate Cory Booker talking about his plan, uh, to expand that legislation nationwide and also potentially to form a federal commission to oversee all sports. Fascinating. Okay. Well, once again, the podcast is called The Lead, and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's time for another musical break. I've got another one of my girl power songs. Um, This is Bad Girls by MIA. Check it out. Have a listen. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU, Thunder 91.1. Live fast, die young, bad girls, do it well. Young bad girls do it well. Fast die young bad girls do it well. 
Hey, welcome back to the Apex Hour, everyone. That was, we're getting on our feisty girl playlist. That's Bad Girls by MIA. Welcome back. You're listening to KS Youth under 91.1. Welcome back into the studio, Dave Barry and Kavitha Davidson. So I'm going to let you guys take it because I, um, you know, one of the topics that, that comes up all the time when we were, when we were talking with the Women's World Cup and the U.S. team, they've been taking such a strong stance, not just this year, but for years on on pay and equal pay and payment for athletes. And I'd love for you guys to open up a conversation about about pay and and take it from there and let's hear about it. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So uh, so we have this this bill in California name and likenesses uh where do you see this going where is the where's the where will this lead us well so first of all what uh lynn was referring to was equal pay for women's teams and women's sports what this bill is referring to is college athletes Mm -hmm. um now the college athlete bill 
you know, people are, are, are trying to look a hundred steps ahead and say that this will lead to salaried players and pay for play. And that's debatable. What this bill actually is, is, is saying is if there is a, let's say, college football player who Nike wants to sign to a Jersey deal, um, as long as that doesn't, uh, interfere with an existing apparel deal that the school has with another company, that player is free to do so. Um, and to a lot of people, myself included, that seems like a fair, let's say free market argument that this player should be able to make money off of his name, image, and likeness. And I think the, you know, the, the argument, uh, the argument there is that every other student on campus is allowed to work, is allowed to make money outside of being a student, except athletes. I agree. Uh, and so what's going to happen here is other states are going to adopt the same law. That's clearly happening already, mm-hmm. right? Uh, eventually, and I think everyone should see this, every state will have to do this, because if your state doesn't do this, then your colleges will not be able to recruit the top athletes because they're going to go where they can make money. So we now take the next obvious step. Every state now does this. Mm-hmm. So we are now, these players are now taking money for playing college athletes. And there's going to be some who are going to be fairly wealthy doing this. Right. And the argument against this has been that it will disrupt competitive balance and it will create the system of haves and have-nots. And and that's probably true. Um, but I think the argument against that is we don't really have competitive there is, balance. Yeah, there is no competitive balance We in have a sports. Power 5 conference in the NCAA, right? Like Wesleyan University is not recruiting to the same level that Alabama is. So this is, this is, this is a, uh, I've done research on this. This is in my, my, my sports economics textbook. Uh, if you look at every single sport in college, you will find that every sport is dominated by a small collection of and it's not the same colleges. So, you know, women's volleyball is not the same collection of colleges as men's basketball. But every sport has a collection of schools that win most of the titles. And that's what happens with the student athletes is since you're not going to pay them a salary, they're going to choose their college based on where they're going to win. And they know how do they decide that. Well, they're like, who won in the past? So the whoever won in the past will recruit better players going forward. So before the college, men's college basketball season starts, who are the top teams? Michigan State, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky. Yeah, you know what? Those are the same teams for the last 50 years. They've been the same teams because those players go to those schools. So now they're going to take money from names and likenesses. Some of those players are going to make a lot of money. And I think what ends up happening is every state does this. People are going to become comfortable with the idea that college athletes get paid. And eventually, the obvious next step is, well, then why don't we just pay them? And well, I, and I, and I, I, and I don't see how the, I don't see how people are going to resist that idea. I don't think they're going to say, I'm okay with Nike paying them, but I'm not okay with Kansas just paying them directly. What difference does it make? Uh, I, I think to a lot of people, there is a difference there because it's, it's, it's kind of a separation of church and state. It is the argument that, um, you know, they're not salaried. They're not being paid to play, but they are being paid because their, their play is valuable. Um, I'm not coming down either way on that issue, but what this does really get at is making people more comfortable with the idea of athletes being paid gets at the heart of the purity of, of amateur and the purity of college sports, which to me is a myth, right? Oh, amateur it's absolutely a myth. a myth. That never, that never happened. Right. It was, it, 
Okay, college sports became professional in 1858 when they sold tickets <laughs> to the first rowing match in 1850. So it, it's been, and if you go back to the 19th century, they were paying players. You know, oh. some of my favorite stories. One of my favorite stories is the Fielding Yost story, mm-hmm. where Fielding Yost was a star college player, uh, a school in Pennsylvania. He was at Marshall. A school in Pennsylvania wanted him, so in the middle of the season, they enrolled him as a student. He played one game with them, and then he went back to Marshall, and they paid him to do that. Wow! And that's how college sports was when it was pure. <laughs> is that they did stuff like right. that? Well, and we we actually did an episode at the lead on SMU. Now, I uh, I think those of us. I was not born in the 80s. I was born in 1989. But those of us who did watch college football in the 80s remember SMU as this powerhouse program. People who watch college football today probably have no idea. Um, But basically, this year, SMU is ranked for the first time since they received what's called the death penalty uh, by the NCAA in 1986. So for 1987... What that meant was they were not allowed to have a football program and they were not allowed to recruit. And basically the whole program is shut down. And it's taken them 30 years basically to rebuild that program. Now, what were they given the harshest penalty in the, in the NCAA for? Recruiting violations. And, and this kind of goes to Dave's point that this has been happening since the beginning of time. It's just a matter of whether we accept and acknowledge it and whether we want that behavior to happen under or over the table. And one of the best stories that came out of that SMU era was that, you know, Hall of Fame NFL running back Eric Dickerson. Uh, he was part of a backfield for SMU known as the Pony Express, um, because the SMU team is, is the Mustangs. But basically, when he was being recruited out of high school, they saw that he was this once in a generation talent. He was being highly recruited by all of the colleges in in, in Texas. And he had committed to Texas A&M very famously, um, he rolled up after after committing in a gold Trans Am. And the joke was this was the gold Trans A&M. This was uh. one of the under the table payments that uh, that the Aggies gave him to to sign to commit to them. Uh, suddenly, you know, he's got this gold Trans Am. He changes his mind and he signs with SMU in, in the midst of kind of this culture war, this booster war of who can get which players in Texas. And to this day, Eric Dickerson will not tell you exactly what he got in return for changing his mind. Oh, wow. And it's going to be interesting going forward. If if you can sell likenesses and get paid for that, what stops a college from arranging that you get the likenesses contracts? Because... I think that is obviously what the colleges are going to start doing is, look, I can't pay you directly, but if you come to my school, I will make sure that you get these contracts and we're going to sell your likenesses and they're going to arrange the contracts for them. So again, you're essentially going to be paying them. But again, this is also coming, you know, in a year when we've had an FBI investigation into Adidas and agents and and college programs and boosters arranging these contracts already for players. So yes. I think it's just, you know, it's it's kind of it's a similar thing to the the sports betting legalization argument. This is behavior that we know goes exactly. on. It's a little odd the FBI investigates NCAA rules because it's like that's not government rules. <laughs> this, is, this is not the NCAA is not the government. So it's right. a little odd the FBI gets involved. It, and my understanding of it is the legal rationale that they did that is not entirely clear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not clear what it is you were legally investigating. Well, I had never thought about it from the perspective of, you know, other college students can get paid for their talent. And and it makes me think of, you know, being a music teacher. I mean, when I was in school, I was playing gigs all the time. And we would we would be 
sort of contracted out as college students, like you'd call a school and you'd want a string quartet, let's say, um, and then you could go and and play and get money for that. So I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. You sort of think of sports as being this this own thing. And because it's things like Nike and Adidas, which are huge, you know, or organizations, huge amount of money. um, So I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, which brings me to my next topic. And that is music. Um, And one of the things that I just completely just was completely tickled about was that in my research of you, um, let's see, there's some Juilliard training in there. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit, not only is she an amazing sports journalist and uh, radio TV personality, but you're also a fantastic musician. Uh, thank you. I'm blushing uh, <laughs> as much as my brown skin allows me to blush. <laughs> so I I am a three instrument player. I started playing the piano when I was six years old. I started playing the cornet and then trumpet uh, in a British brass band in school uh, at the age of eight or nine, I can't remember. And then I adopted the French horn when I was in, in high school, but trumpet is my, is my main instrument. Um, and I, I have been very lucky to play in some very highly touted, uh, orchestras from a, from a very young age. And I've played at venues like, I've played with the Birmingham Symphony. I've played, I've been a ringer on Broadway. Um, I've, I've played at Carnegie Hall and Avery Fisher Hall, now called David Geffen Hall. Um, so I, I have been very lucky in that regard. And, and yes, for a very brief time, time I did I did part of the joint program at Columbia and Juilliard um, knowing that I wasn't good enough to do this professionally and that I also just didn't have the time or resources to devote to it but yeah music has been a, a huge part of of my of my life and of my growth and and you know I I am very um I'm very protective of my musical identity because I think, and I've written about this, there is such a divide between the arts world and the sports world. And I think so much of it is manufactured. Totally. We're not, you know, we're not monolithic people. We're not one dimensional. We have a multitude of, in- of, of, of interests. And obviously the money in sports programs far outweighs the money in arts programs that are constantly being cut. But we don't have to sacrifice one for the other. And more than that, we don't have to pit kind of the jocks against the nerds or the theater kids because right. some of us are both. And yeah. Well, and there's so many, I mean, the, the, the way you prepare as an athlete and the way you prepare as a musician, and, 100%, you know, yeah. there's so many similarities there and breathing and, exercises yeah. and like literally expanding your lungs or, uh, you know, fingering exercise if you're a violinist and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Trying to shave a few seconds off for speed. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that happens all the time in music. So I loved hearing about your background and I happen to know that there's a certain trumpet solo because I know most of your background was classic. But you did a, a bit of a four or at least have a passion for some popular music and one particular trumpet solo in one particular song. And that's by Cake, oh, if no. I have it right. <laughs> and so um, for our last musical break, I just had to bring up the song Italian Leather Sofa, which in the middle of it has this fantastic trumpet solo. So in honor of your trumpet history, I'd love to play that song for you. So let's hear Italian Leather Sofa by Cake. This is KS. You Thunder 91.1. <laughs>
She's got a silk dress and healthy breasts that bounce on his Italian leather sofa. As long as she still has her friends Oh no, yeah She doesn't care whether or not he's an island They laugh, they make money, he's got her gold watch She's got a silk dress and healthy breasts that bounce on his Italian leather sofa Doesn't care whether or not. 
Welcome back, everyone. So that was the uh, slightly risque Italian letter sofa. But we were playing that because we really wanted to highlight that awesome trumpet solo in the middle that Kavitha Davidson likes so much. So hope you enjoyed that listen. Thank you. All right. We are almost out of time. And I have a favorite question to ask. um, And it just gives our listeners a way to kind of um, get some new ideas for things either to listen to or read or watch. Um, We like to ask our guests, what's turning you on this week? So, you know, what's what's something that is you're really excited about? And it can be anything. It could be a song. It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a TV show. It could be food. It could be anything. So Dave and Kavitha, I would like to know what's turning you on this week. Uh, I'm going to go with an athlete. As a long-suffering Knicks fan, uh, we saw the debut of Knicks rookie R.J. Barrett yesterday. And even though the Knicks lost, and this is what it's like to be a Knicks fan, we're finding the uh, the silver linings in in a, in a lifetime of losses. Uh, he became the youngest player to score 20 points in his first ever NBA game. And he's just going to be such an exciting talent to watch. And hopefully Knicks ownership and management doesn't muck this one up again. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. All right, Dave Barry, what's turning you on? Well, I do a lot of analysis of player productivity in sports, and I could talk about R.J. Barrett's performance in college, but I won't. I'll talk about something else because I don't want to ruin things for Knicks fans. Come on, don't bust be, the bubble, man. Knicks, Knicks fans fall for this every year. Every, every year you year. fall for you fall for every score. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you never win because you keep picking the same players. All right, so what I, what has been exciting me? I, I just finished a book uh, by Katrine uh, Katrine Marcel, I think is how you pronounce it called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? Oh. And so this is something that, that we talk about. We talked about gender issues earlier on in, in economics. And so one of the things that economics talks about is is the invisible hand and the idea that, you know, it is not from benevolence that the butcher cuts your meat and the baker bakes your bread. Well, this woman, Katrine Marcel, wrote this book saying, well, Adam Smith came up with all that. And he talks about how great markets are. Well, who cooked Adam Smith's dinner? Because the woman who kicked his dinner was his mother. And his mother didn't do it because of market forces. She did it because she liked him. And that's a part of economics that gets left out is that people don't do things just for money. People are doing things, primarily women are doing things that they're not compensated for. Right. And we don't talk about that in economics nearly enough, although in my gender economics class, we do actually talk about these things. But this is not something that we talk about enough. Yeah, cool. What was the name of that book again? It is Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for that. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you both today. So thank you so much for your time. And we'd love to have you back anytime. Um, but thanks again for being here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me too. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, we are going to sign off and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU's Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. 
And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.